Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4,282 of the Bugle audio newspaper for a visual universe. Uh, only kidding. Vis- visual world. Still no conclusive evidence that the universe exists for me, but the world... <laughs> I'm on it right now, and it doesn't get any more real than that. I am Andy Zaltzman, still, and if I could turn back time... Well, I wouldn't be doing this podcast for a whole host of reasons. If you're listening to this through a smart speaker, um, just see what happens when this bit plays out. Hey, whatever your smart speaker's current name is, uh, do an impression of Andy Zaltzman, Alice Fraser and Mark Steele talking about the world's news. And now see if you can tell the difference from uh, what the rest of the show. Welcome uh, to the show. So, yes, there you are, our guest today, Alice Fraser in, uh, in uh, Sydney, um, New South Wales, about to move to Queensland. Um, when are they going to update that name? Uh, it, I mean, it just seems a bit insensitive now. Queensland. Yes, but that is Queensland's calling card is being insensitive, <laughs> so I figure they're just going to lean in. <laughs> um, and uh, Mark Steele joining us uh, from Crystal Palace, correct? I'm in North London at the moment oh, for right, a series okay. of reasons. Right. Well, Crystal Palace is another place that really needs to update its name. The f- thing burnt down in 1936. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like calling Pompeii never been inconvenienced by a volcanic eruption. Uh, um, so how are you? Uh, well, they say those in Crystal Palaces shouldn't throw incendiary devices. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, that's what that's what started that particular phrase. <laughs> if only that phrase had existed in 1936. Someone said, oh, "I don't see the problem." <laughs> oh no, what have you done? <laughs> uh, how are you, Mark? Well, cancer, but apart from that, I'm quite, I'm all right. All right. <laughs> I, was, I mean, that's a very direct way of breaking it to any Bugle listeners who've, who've not heard uh, heard that news. You have written about it uh, um, on uh, and talked about it on your own on your own shows. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I'm quite cheery at the moment because Good. the sort of uh, the bad thing that happened about six weeks ago, I recovered from that, and then all this treatment starts next week. So at the moment, I'm in this sort of little little pocket of, of sheeriness where I'm quite feel fine and the slightest little thing gives me immense joy like all the wick the cleaners around I mean what's paying <laughs> this is the sort of thing that makes life worth living <laughs> look at the cat doing a shit <laughs> life goes on it's amazing well I recommend it it's great cancer because it's sort of, you think oh god and I'm and then I had one day that was really grim. One of the, the consult this consultant who probably wasn't going to win any awards for communication skills <laughs> said, "This is exact words. <laughs> Not good news, Mister Steele. Ah, ah." And he said, "And that's what I knew for certain." He said, "I knew cancer, and this, this is secondary cancer, used in two places." Ah, and I said, "Is it fatal?" And he went. Touch wood and then touched a bit of wood. <laughs> oh no! But that was, I thought, oh, well, at least if he hadn't touched any wood, that would have been even more disturbing, I suppose. <laughs> it's not even worth attempting a superstitious remedy. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's it's not. It, it, anyway, it's not. It's going to be all right. Do you touch wood in Australia for luck? <laughs> I don't know this might be an English yes. thing, I don't know. No, we we touch wood. We've got we've got wood, we touch it. Right. But you've you, got to you do it the other way. Wood and that means lucky, you know, let's hope. And then maybe that's what did it because the next day I found out that it yeah, you know, the cancer had spread anywhere and therefore it's 
what seems to be fairly pretty much certain that they'll they'll deal with it. But um, you know, and maybe the reason that they'll be able to deal with it is because he touched wood and whatever spirits and fairies are in uh, are sort of informed at that point. They noted it down. <laughs> I think that's the kind of level of science that um, we've been hearing about here in the in the COVID inquiry, which we'll be, uh, be talking about <laughs> talking about later. Um, well, great, it's great to great to have you uh, on the show, Alice. You are um, are uh, now approximately what is it? It's over seventy five percent pregnant now. And yes, yes. It, Almost completely pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I like to see these things in statistical terms. <laughs> I've, I, yeah, I've almost achieved my final form of being entirely spherical. <laughs> Touch wood. That's exciting, though. <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting. It's 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 a delight in every possible way. Um, particularly having a toddler means that I get to have the the joy of being kicked from both the outside and the inside at the same time, <laughs> which is novel. Yeah. I was asked in one of the meetings where they were talking to me about radiotherapy and they go through all these side effects. The way she put it, she, her English wasn't perfect, this assault. She said, I must ask you, have you completed your family? <laughs> <laughs> what? What do you mean? And I thought, what, like, it's a jigsaw. And she's, <laughs> And she said, no, have you completed your family? I said, I don't know what, what you mean. She said, well, have you? And then I realised what she meant. And I, and then I realised, A, what she meant, and B, that apparently this radiotherapy, if I hadn't completed my family, was going to re- was going to significantly impair uh, my ability <laughs> to make any more family. <laughs> We are recording on the 24th of November, 2023. Just a couple of days ago, uh, it was 60 years since John F. Kennedy was assassinated by... I've got the uh, envelope here, courtesy of a friend um, who works uh, in uh, the highest levels of uh, American intelligence. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, (laughs) On the the same day, the 22nd of November 1963, current Sunderland football manager Tony Mowbray was born. Um, Yes, the former Middlesbrough centre-back came into the world at the exact same moment that John F. Kennedy left it. Read into that what you will. Uh, Also, at nine and a bit months, about 40 weeks later, Keanu Reeves was born. Read into that what you will. Um, also uh, popping their clogs on the 22nd of November 1963, two giants of English literature, the wardrobe fetishist C.S. Lewis and dystopia aficionado Aldous Huxley, uh, which has to be disappointing if you're dying thinking, well, I'm quite a literature celebrity, I'm going to be absolutely front-page news. Who's been shot? What a disappointing way. Uh, as always a section of the bugle uh, is going straight in the bin uh this week we look at the uh, words of the year last year the cambridge dictionary chose hallucinate as the word of the year the word nerding book bothering boffins chose hallucinate um after it impressively branched out into uh new meanings um specifically describing how ai generates text it hallucinates uh, text. So well, that was their word of the year. It's uh, not the first person to hallucinate. hallucinate text. Yeah. I didn't see that. All right. It's just a hallucination joke there for you all. <laughs> um, 
I'm not the first person to hallucinate um, <laughs> text, to be honest. Um, uh, also uh, describes how former Home Secretary Suella Bravman acquires evidence before making policies. Um, it, uh, so hallucinate is qualified as British Word of the Year for the European Word of the Year contest, where it'll be up against the uh, continent's um, best verbal offerings, um, including uh, flaguette uh, from uh, France, <laughs> uh, which is a slightly... Um, past its best baguette uh the words hotly tipped to challenge for the word of the year in 2024 include draculate uh, which in economics uh, is a company that sucks the blood out of defenseless competitors without really making its own life any better so that's uh, that's most companies over a certain size uh fanesthesia which is being put to sleep by people complaining about refereeing decisions on a football <laughs> phone in um uh, yesimism which is doing something that you think you should do even though you know it will have absolutely f- all impacts whatsoever um for example recycling a tin can signing a petition to demand more uh, ethical oil exploration practices by global oil giants in developing countries that kind of thing uh swearobics obviously it's got to be jewish term obvs but spelt with an f not a v that's short for obfuscation um given that we have both (laughs) elections coming in both the uk and the us uh oppenheimlich uh, which is to save something <laughs> at the last moment, only to unleash something far, far worse. Um, <laughs> I like that one. Um, uh, apologize that's his belated post-imperial acceptance that uh, changing the names of places and drawing borders randomly on maps um, um, doesn't always uh, turn out uh, tremendously well. Um, uh, and... Uh, Musicalatable, which is something that can be turned into a musical, which is apparently every single f***ing thing that has ever existed. <laughs> now, that section, in the bin. <laughs> Top story this week, war is over! Uh, for a little bit. Um, f- four days precisely. Don't worry, human suffering fans. War will, uh, once again, not be over in uh, in just four days time today as we recorded is day one of a four day ceasefire did we ever finalize the language on is it a pause a ceasefire a pause fire a cease atrocity or a t interval a t short for temporary break in hostilities um we'll, we'll let history be the judge of that it's um the last couple of months ever since hamas perpetrated its terrorist abominations have been an even more difficult time than usual to be on the i wish people would stop killing each other and learn to live in harmony even whilst i also acknowledge how difficult that may to uh, may be to achieve politically end of the political seesaw uh, when it comes to uh, the middle east um mark you've not been on on the, the bugle since the uh, the the start of the, this uh, latest flare up in this uh, well crisis that began uh, pretty much uh, after God span his globe and said, "Yep, yeah, that bit." Um, it's uh, is there any optimism from the fact that th- th- there is at least this little micro glimmer of light? Well, uh, no, I'm not all that optimistic. I think you're quite right. It is probably more like a tea interval, and then they'll ring a bell when it's five minutes from the end, <laughs> and then they'll go back to the commentary. Oh, they're coming out again. Here come all the here come all the drones, and uh, there's the Israeli defence force. <laughs> Yeah, there is some optimism. The amazing thing about this, in the first few days after it happened, it just seemed that if you were of the view that slaughtering civilians who had gone to a music festival was horrible and bombing hospitals was also horrible, that was an extremist point of view. (laughs) Most people in the world, I mean, something like 76% of people in Britain 
think that a ceasefire is the thing that they think that they all just stop killing each other. Sort of optimistic that only 24% of the British population think, no, I'm enjoying you slaughtering <laughs> children. That's quite chirpy, isn't it? I guess so. The exchange of not enough hostages for not enough ceasefire is simultaneously a very impressive bit of international diplomatic relations and depressingly inadequate given the sort of five-dimensional depth of the conflict that uh, is going on in that area, which is to say there are these like irreconcilable differences about things like whose house this is uh, that stretch across geography, time and apparently into consensus reality. Um but I find I find the ceasefire itself sort of depressing because it just means that you could not, you know? <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. What if we just didn't? <laughs> Turns out to be an option. Whereas, you know, you're sort of faced with this horrible conflict and it feels so, you feel so helpless to it that it could ever possibly be wound up in any way that would make anybody happy. And then they're just like, oh, we can stop for four days. Yeah, it's like like the um, the the, Chris, the famous Christmas Day football match in the First World War, the the first Christmas of the First World War, nineteen fourteen. There was a you know, a ceasefire for Christmas Day. They played football. There was a controversial offside decision, and it took four more years of fighting to before everyone <laughs> calmed down. But that's that's football, I think, more than anything. VAR have only just come up with a decision. In fact, <laughs> for those of you who are not aware of it, the Middle East, or as I assume it's known, Alice, if you live in Australia, the Middle Northwest. Um, is, uh, of course, the old um, stomping ground of biblical super-celebs such as um, slow-travel pioneer Moses, magician, raconteur and escapologist Jesus Christ, former Here. MMA star Goliath and token romantic interest Mary. And, like I said, I find it hard to be optimistic because we're conditioned from childhood to want stories to have happy endings. That's why we don't have children's books like The Lion, The Witch and The Dunking Pond, um, The Typhoid Who Came to Tea, <laughs> The Very Hungry Cannibal... The Snuffalo, Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Chocolate Factory, uh, 14 remaining Dalmatians. Um, you've got to gently introduce children to the concept of mortality, but it has to be handled a bit more sens- uh, sensitively. And Winnie the Putin. Well, we don't have books like that because we search for happy narratives, but reality seldom provides the kind of endings that, that, that we're taught to want uh, from childhood. And I guess the best we can hope for in the Middle East is, and they all lived happily ever after for a maximum of 96 hours. Is, is Winnie the Putin, like, instead of not wearing pants, he just doesn't wear a shirt? <laughs> COVID inquiry news now. Well, here in the United Kingdom, um, we have, uh, well, for some weeks now, been enjoying, is that the right term? No. Uh, the official inquiry into um, how the government dealt with COVID. Uh, Mark, as a long-time supporter of the Conservative Party yeah. and died in the wooden blazer adherent of Thatcherite social and economic policy, it must have been very hard for you to watch your heroes turn out, not to have, just have feet of clay, but to have feet of clumsily modelled, incompetently fired, probably corrupt, shit-covered clay. Um, how, have you, how have you dealt with, with well, seeing Well, so out? much of the, the British sort of news channels have been saying things during the COVID inquiry, such as it just extraordinary. The revelations have been quite remarkable, uh, despite the fact that all through the lockdown, everyone was going, I haven't got a f- clue. <laughs> and, and they were just sort of, uh, uh, Boris Johnson would be uh, at the time coming on television every day saying, the R rate, if it exceeds, if it exceeds, it's gone down from three to nine 
which shows that it's, <laughs> you must you must go to work, but are not permitted to travel there, and you you must fly, but must, but not within six feet of birds, and and uh, you know, the, the the maximum number permitted in a rule is not. So if you find yourself in a rule, you must leave immediately. You know, only two people are permitted in any degree of latitude. So so before you go to the kitchen. You must check with Morocco. And, uh, <laughs> and anybody could have said, right, this is, uh, this is just have a gold clue. And Matt Hancock used to stand there every day. I felt sorry for him in front of the scientists. And he'd be asked a question like, um, do you think that the new variant has maybe a capacity, biologically speaking, to invade other parts of the anatomy? And Matt Hancock would stand there. Like I would be if I suddenly got a job in a in a tight quick fit, and someone was going, "What the what's the PR three one two setting on this carburetor?" And I'd just be stood there going, "Oh, oh, oh, oh is it the purple one?" And, and and so then he f***s off to Australia to earn four hundred thousand pounds along with a celebrity, which I think from the start would have been all right if Anton Deck every night had gone. Just as he was about to put his head in a box of scorpions. You know, normally we would give you, uh, normally we would give you muggle, goggles for this, Mark, but I'm afraid we've run out of protective equipment. And all of them were passing off the PPE contract for billions of pounds to people who lived next door and their aunt and their sister and people who were fing had a degree in knowing all about making PPE equipment. And in one case, Matt Hancock's bloody landlord. And now the BBC had. Who would have thought they didn't know what they were doing apart from everybody? And there's, but then all oh, how you jump. So even Dominic Cummings, who people remember, was caught breaking all the rules by driving to a place called Barnard Castle, hundreds of miles. And he said he was doing it because he wanted to check his eyes were working properly. And we'd so never did what anyone would do if you think your eyes aren't working properly. You get all your family, put them in a car and go, let's drive 200 miles. And if we cause a multi-car pile up and kill a load of people, then it's clear my eyes need looking at. And <laughs> then you go to the optician. Then you go to the optician. All of this. But even so, I don't think we were aware of the scale of just our mental. So Boris Johnson, it turns out, in at the start of the COVID said, isn't COVID just nature's way of dealing with the elderly? Ah! <laughs> Rishi Sirak, according to Dominic Cunningham, said, shouldn't we just let people die? Whether he did say that or not, I don't know. But Dominic Cummings claims he didn't. He was like, well, they, all of them are full of this. None of them. Patrick Valance, who was the chief advisor at the time to the government, said that they didn't have a clue that they come. That Boris Johnson in one cabinet meeting said we should have a full-on lockdown like France, and then a minute later said we should have no lockdown at all and just let it rip. So just like, like a toddler, let's, <laughs> let's go to the seaside. Oh, shall we? No, I hate the seaside. Just like all of them, utterly, utterly useless. And the one thing they did know is that having told everybody that they should lock down and under no circumstances go anywhere with anyone else at all, they then immediately went into the upstairs room at Downing Street with about 120 of them and had a 
you know, I had beast the night where they were all playing drum and bass and <laughs> shagging each other pace and wheelbarrow loads of drink and being sick over each other and getting buckets of COVID and spraying each other with it over a garden hose and then saying they didn't do it and then Boris Johnson going, no, the photo weren't conclusive because maybe I'm not me, maybe I'm Shirley Bassey. And I just... Un... Unbelievable how they're not all in jail. <laughs> I, my favourite part of it was the kind of the turn of Dominic Cummings to sort of whistleblower and revealing all of these horrible conversations and these horrible things that people had said and these horrible strategies that were tabled uh, without ever mentioning how much of it was like, oh, and that was my idea, by the way. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Let's just... One after that. And also the language of them all. They're all sort of calling each other ass, <laughs> which shitheads, moronic, <laughs> stupid, all this sort of thing. Unbelievable. And it's, and poor Chris Whitty, who was the scientific bloke who had to stand there every day and say uh, that this is what we feel that the current situation is likely to lead to. And he'd have these slides, and he was a scientist, and he understood it all. And then he would say all that, and that's why we're advising this. And then the government would do exactly the opposite. And go, no. And then they would go, the government would go, we're all through. The slogan was, we are following the science. But they weren't following the science at all. They might as well have <laughs> said, we are following the science. And that's why everyone over the age of 70, if we're going to, fo- actually, we're following that midsummer film. Everyone over the 70 <laughs> has to climb up to the top of the garage and jump off into a bath with an electric fire in it because they're too <laughs> old. And this is nature's way of dealing with the elderly because we're following the science. And Chris Whitty must feel like a surgeon who's about to get halfway through giving someone a heart bypass and then Boris Johnson comes in and, and goes, give me that time and what I, I think we should pour creosote on his liver and, <laughs> and fill, his, fill his kidneys with pickled onions and then he just had to do it and then three years later go, uh, I was aware at the time that there was certain concerns about the government's approach with regard to the pickled onions. <laughs> I always thought that nature's way of dealing with the elderly was making them inclined to vote Tory, their own <laughs> natural predator. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's remarkable that they were killing off the very people who put them in power, but I suppose that shows <laughs> just that, oh, they're ever so good at killing us all, let's vote for them again. <laughs> uh, I'll be honest, I mean, the COVID, it's not my thing as a, as a drama. Um, I've tried to follow it, but I, I, my main problem, uh, and I have this with a lot of the, the kind of big TV box sets, is that I find the central character um, just deeply implausible and unlikable on too many levels. Uh, in this case, it's uh, it's Boris Johnson, who has, was described as bamboozled by science, uh, which would have been the title of Dances with Wolves if it had been starring Boris Johnson instead of Kevin Costner. Um, he also said this, well, on, on the subject of suggesting that old people should be allowed to die, he said they've had a good innings, which, as a cricket fan, you know, I never like hearing that terminology... Um, misused because that's, what he's basically saying is they've had a long innings and it needs to be sort of means tested in a way because if you're 75 but you've lived most of your life struggling to get by and are just hoping to have a few years of relative stability to enjoy some of the things in life you are never able to do before that's not a good innings so therefore you should qualify for healthcare but if say you're 60 minted 
have been on three holidays a year for most of your life, play golf twice a week, eat out in fancy restaurants and own a seldom-used antique Victorian sex chair. That is a good oh. innings, <laughs> and therefore you should be the one jumping off the roof or whatever, whatever it was that you were suggesting. Um, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, was uh, um, described as having a habit of saying things that were not true, which is not ideal as health secretary, given that health is at least partially related to science, uh, in which facts and truth are quite quite useful and not harmlessly i'm not saying sort of harmless things that weren't true such as did you know florence nightingale once performed a tracheotomy on a leopard cub whilst blindfolded or you can cure mumps <laughs> by standing on your head for an hour singing these boots are made for walking but actually damaging lies that had an impact on on the public but anyway such it's it's, it's i think the important thing though is i mean we, we sort of uh, is to to learn how we might do things better next time. Are there lessons that we can learn? Now, do bear, this is a difficult thing for us here in Britain because we've seldom, if ever, had to learn lessons because we've never got anything wrong through history. That's just how things are when when you're British. But, you know, I don't know what, what lessons you think we should be learning, um, uh, either of you. What, what what do you think should be the, the, the learnings from this, this crisis? <laughs> I think we should learn to, to carry on much as we've been doing. All right, good. I think we should, whenever the, whenever the scientists in Italy and France, scientists and governments in Italy and France and China uh, all effectively carry out a way of curbing um, a new epidemic, we should call them all foreign twats and <laughs> do, the, do the very opposite and then go, oh, shit, everyone in the care home is being wheeled out under a blanket. <laughs> And I think uh, another thing we should learn is uh, to be careful what we wish for. Sorry, not wish, vote. Uh, and I think a good rule of thumb is if you wouldn't trust someone to look after one or more of your teddy bear, girlfriend, economy, lunch or democracy, for fuck's sake, don't make them prime minister. Uh, I think that's probably a pretty sound rule of thumb. They all know, don't they? All these people who are going, well, I mean, he does seem to be rather someone who didn't pay attention to detail and was rather more concerned with his own well-being and, and his finances. And... Um, we just didn't realise he was he was like that. <laughs> well, to be fair, I mean, this democracy working for once, he had laid those cards firmly on the table over yeah. decades in public life, and he was merely giving the nation what it voted for. I would say, you know, their mothers could have told you they were like this, except all of their mothers outsourced the work to a nanny. <laughs> That's why they're all f***ed. People being sacked and then unsacked news now. And um, Alice, um, you have been covering the world of um, tech gazillionaires uh, for well, pretty much as long as you've been on this uh, th this podcast. Uh, uh, years? When was it? Twenty twenty seventeen, I think. Your first on. Wow, that's quite that. Doesn't time fly? Um, <laughs> uh, bring us up to date with the latest uh, the, the latest exciting news from uh, from the crazy world of uh, top level tech. I mean, this is such exciting news uh, that if we had just waited a week to see what would happen, would have not have been news at all because someone got fired and then rehired back into the same position. So if we'd just held fire, we wouldn't have needed all of the op-eds <laughs> on what happened. Uh, out of the blue, seemingly, on Friday, uh, 
uh, OpenAI CEO Sam Altman was fired by the board of directors. And then after much scandal and controversy, playing social media and normal media, he he staged a counter coup. Uh, he mobilized hundreds of employees, including, uh, incredibly enough, the original coup leader. Uh, and he won the support of all the investors, uh, including Microsoft, against the company itself and got rehired in the same position, which has got to be awkward for the people who stabbed him in the back. Uh if you, anyone is not sure what OpenAI is, it's the it's the parent company of ChatGPT, and it's sort of in the in the front in the forefront of the tech world at the moment. Um, the problem with AI at the moment is that uh, so one of the one of the proposed reasons that he was fired was that he wasn't taking safety seriously enough that this possible AI could be a threat to humanity and that he's pushing ahead for commercial gain without considering the potential implications of this world-changing technology. But the real problem with AI is that what we call AI isn't what you would call AI if you were trying to describe what AI is meant to be. (laughs) So the thing that we used to call AI in sci-fi, we now call AGI or artificial general intelligence, because what we now we call AI is not actually AI, it's, it's sort of a sophisticated mash-up machine that's being sold as the future of technology and humanity by people whose favourite thing is selling the thing they haven't invented yet. <laughs> so he's been hailed as a genius mainly for stuff that he hasn't done yet but says <laughs> will happen soon and uh, no one's willing to lose the possibility that he might still do it. So far, uh, I think the market has been very credulous about the claims of these tech bros because the future seems cool and no one wants to miss investing in the next better mousetrap. The problem is that the tech industry as a whole does not want to build a better mousetrap. They want to pitch a mousetrap app that they dreamed up while microdosing absinthe in the desert (laughs) to get VC funding within six months and then retire having built nothing but taking the credit for fundamentally disrupting the mousetrap industry using an AI-enabled crypto blockchain which you can use to mint unique mouse coins each coin stably tethered to one individual dead mouse's dna and you ask them what the core service of their app is and it turns out it's just a taxi that you call and then they drive by and throw an angry cat in your window and then you rank the cat by customer service general fluffiness and mouse killing ability but now the app's only being used by nazis and incels to throw cats through the windows of women they don't like because the developers did not think through any of the possible ways in which their service could be misused and now cats with low fluffiness ratings are killing themselves because the app's given them a self-esteem problem. And <laughs> right. that's the tech industry oh, right I now. See. No, I understand that now. Yeah, I think I both <laughs> understand it more and less. Um, <laughs> thanks. Also, I think, with, I mean, that might be the longest sentence in the history of the bugle. And uh, I, mean, I think Mark, Mark's put in a few challenges for that over the years. And you know, that's, it's a hotly contested title, to be honest. So. <laughs> Thank you. I know it will be all right. I know it will do all of these things in the end, and it'll be both dangerous and amazing and all of that. But at the moment, is it does it do much? Are No, it it sort of. Get, I mean, it aggregates enormous amounts of data and then spits them back out. Yeah, in a sort of a information slurry. <laughs> yeah. So if you tell it a load of stuff and then ask it something, it will tell you one of the things back that you told it, and then one goes, "It's amazing." <laughs> Well, I guess also it takes in all this stuff and then splurges some of it back. So essentially, it's at the baby stage. That's, yes. So I mean, we've got to be, you've got to be careful because you know it'll, eventually, when you have teenage AI, it will be. Um, it will. I mean, it will be. Yeah, so. you'll ask it. You'll, you'll say, <laughs> "Can you write me? Can you write me a speech, please, for my um, for my presentation 
at the diagnostics um, <laughs> technology conference, and it will go, oh, why the f*** should I? <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on now to Rats News. Um, uh, Alice, you are, uh, as we speak, in Australia. And you have been... Well, Australia is in the grip of a plague of rats. That classic trope of humanity that seems to recur um, throughout uh, throughout history. Are you going to be the um, uh, Pied Piper that removes the rats from Australia? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I mean, I hope so. These rats are washing up on thousands of rats, both dead and alive, washing up on beaches in Queensland, which is I'm about to move to a small coastal town in Queensland. So I'm, <laughs> I can only hope that this is going to pass me by. Uh, look, everyone's horrified at the, at this prospect. We had a mouse plague not so long ago. It was pretty awful. Uh, and now it's a mixed r- mouse and rat plague and everyone's really horrified. But I think from one perspective, you could see this as a kind of a wildlife racism. Like, because it's rats, it's way more disgusting. But you have to, re- you know, really, really rethink this. You know, if it was a plague of cute wallabies, Uh, who were driving your ducks mad or stripping the wiring out of your car or thousands of dead koalas washing up on the beach. No, you're right, it's still disgusting. (laughs) I'm going to go out on a limb here and say a plague of anything is bad news. Yeah. Uh, But on the bright side, rats in fishing towns can only mean one thing, which is the launch of a charming children's book about pirate rats, (laughs) Uh, which I have an exclusive extract from right here. He skittered here across the deck, he put the hairs up on your neck, he plundered gold and also cheese, the pirate rat was hard to please. One leg of wood, three legs of leg, one eye a hook, one ear a peg. He played upon a pirate flute, a song of stealing pirate loot. The problem is that every time a parrot lands on his shoulder it carries him off to feed his children, so the lead rat has to keep being replaced by similar looking rats. Um, (laughs) I'll be like our Prime Minister's. (laughs) The kayfabe on the production process is intense. Um. I guess the real concern for those those of you who've uh, uh, film aficionados is that you could have a ratnado uh, if you know there's a <laughs> um, Los Angeles was struck by that very serious sharknado a, a few years ago. Um, so I mean, if when you move to Queensland, if you know, adverse weather conditions, you could have you could have a ratnado, which no one wants to see. <laughs> You're right, though. The rats uh, get a bad press if it was because it would be just it'd be worse wouldn't it if there was a, you know, a a badgers or something if there was a plague of badgers or giraffes oh no <laughs> fucking plague of giraffes <laughs> they get in through the bloody they come out through the skirting <laughs> yeah you open what you thought was a harmless box of cereal and they scuttle out on the floor oh yeah <laughs> now they come one of them's got his head his neck stuck through the cat flap and now it goes right across the living room <laughs> To clamber over it just to get out into the kitchen. Other rats news now. Rats in space. Um, science has been um, experimenting on rats as it tends to do, and it uh, has discovered through experimenting on rats that um, space travel could lead to erectile dysfunction. Um, now, we have uh, had our, our quarrels with scientific research on this show uh, at various points over the past 16 and a bit years, but I think this might top it all, uh, that 
here, here we are. We have some scientists who who had some rats, and presumably their their, their boss said to them, "Right, I'm giving you some rats. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but there we are. They're rats. People find them hard to warm to, so we can <laughs> experiment on them and get away with it. I'm going to leave you alone for three months in the laboratory <laughs> with these rats, and I want you to do some research." to benefit humanity. Off you go. Three months later, comes back in. What have you got? Cure for malaria. New drug that means you can live in 50 degree heat with almost no oxygen. That would be useful. At least a fetching new shade of eyeshadow. Uh, yes, boss. Um, we found out that rats can't get rat boners if you blast them with a cosmic ray gun. Great. Well done, guys. Let me just call the f***ing Nobel Committee right now. R that rats can't get boners in space. That is that is the headline story from this this news. And I guess it does sort of illustrate a lot about research into space travel because we all know why this is a concern and why the research is being done into whether or not you can get a boner in space because mm -hmm, the space race... Everyone wants to f*** the stars. What? Well, that's because our space race between our heroic <laughs> billionaires is basically <laughs> fundamentally a race between the world's richest, most powerful people mm. to be the first human to schwap an alien. They, they all want to be the first <laughs> Musk, Zuckerberg, Bezos, Oliver, Djokovic, Ambani. They all want to be the first <laughs> to enjoy astrocarnal conjigglements with whatever extraterrestrial <laughs> hotsters we encounter in the nether regions of space. That, that's the only explanation for this research. And you would think that an erection would be easier to achieve when there was no gravity, wouldn't it? <laughs> Surely, we are allowed yeah. not to have one. Yep. But, yep. Everything floats, doesn't it? Yep. I'm for this. I'm for mm. every kind of achievement that you would attempt to get women with being negatively correlated with penis function. Like, if you're, <laughs> like, the moment you make more than, like, $10 million, I reckon you should be chemically castrated. <laughs> yeah, I feel like every, you know, every p politician who gets a position of power over anyone should immediately have, like, one-third of their balls chopped off. Like, I feel like this <laughs> should be the penalty for success. <laughs> <laughs> and so obvious, but will Keir Starmer put that in his manifesto? <laughs> well... He just won't commit to anything that that might be even slightly controversial. Obviously, you know, there's, there's something sort of you know, kind of glamorous and exciting about science, and that that sense that you are helping stretch the bounds of knowledge and improve the state of humanity. But when you find yourself trying to get a rat to roll over onto its back to see if it's got the horn, you must think <laughs> oh, maybe I should have done something else. Well, they don't tickle it with a little Q-tip. <laughs> What do they do? I don't know. I've Show never it rat porn. <laughs> I don't do think even know? rats would like rat porn, would they? <laughs> no, rats only so. joke off to gerbil porn. Very controversial piece of ger well. gerbil porn doing the rounds in high school during the early 2000s <laughs> in which a gerbil put a, a very small figurine of Richard Gere up its ass. <laughs> yeah. Family show, Alice. Family show. Uh, of course, it might not be the cosmic rays and the microgravity that stop the rats uh, getting bonus. It could be just and then some. Yeah, some gerbils go, "Oh, that's just made up." It's <laughs> oh, no, I'm with it. I'm with it. I'm with it on the, the gerbil news. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I expect to be hearing from. Um, both Richard's uh, gear and the gerbils' lawyers at some point in the next.
Uh, we're going to just quickly look at the Cricket World Cup final that happened uh, last last weekend, in which India won uh, the runners-up prize in the uh, the two-team final uh, against uh, Australia. And that was not how it was supposed to end. Um, what was it, six or seven weeks of cricket uh, leading to the final in the Narendra Modi Stadium, the stadium in, our, in uh, Ahmedabad that was named after... Uh, Narendra Modi by Narendra Modi uh, the day before it opened Um, and it was all set to be one of the greatest moments of sporting um, propaganda Uh, but India unfortunately for Narendra Modi uh, lost I mean they are a sensationally good cricket team they won 10 in a row to reach the final, 9 in the group stage, then the semi-final. You don't need to be a professional cricket statistician to know that they were one of the top three most statistically dominant teams in a World Cup group stage uh, ever in men's World Cup cricket. You don't need to be a professional cricket statistician because I am one and I've just told you that. Um, But (laughs) it, it did seem that India winning in front of their Prime Minister in a stadium their Prime Minister had named after their Prime Minister. It seemed that was written in the stars, but unfortunately there are a of a lot of stars and if you look hard enough with the right telescope in the right place you can find anything written in the stars including the words ah f***ing typical australia they always come good when it matters and that's uh, <laughs> that's what happened in, in this case mark it was um i mean it did seem all the way through that india were, were too good uh, for everyone but uh, s- such is such is sport yeah well well you said well as far as only one game and of course a similar thing similar thing happened um when england were in the world cup final at badminton that was played at the liz truss Stadium that she named after herself, and it just seemed inevitable yeah. that um, that England's badminton supremos would would come to it, but they but they they yeah. didn't, and then not only that, but she actually bankrupted the leisure centre. It feels like the real story here uh, that that a lot of people have been focusing on is the is the bad sportsmanship, not of the players but of the fans for not sticking it through to watch their team get thoroughly trounced. And if you <laughs> if you really were in it for the love of the game, uh, then you would have stuck around and and seen your defeat and you know given due credit to the honourable winners. Yeah. Um, but it feels like yeah, those, the fans don't know how to how to go about their business anymore. Well, I mean that that is something certainly you know, in England traditionally. That you, you know, you would applaud the opposition, um, if only just to keep warm. Uh, because for a start, certainly <laughs> when I was growing up, there was basically nothing to applaud England for. So you, you had to applaud the opposition, otherwise you would just slowly freeze to death uh, in, under a tarpaulin. Just the sort of the, the comical sort of acceptance of defeat. I watched England lose to Iceland in the uh, Euro Championships seven or eight years ago on a beach in Brighton, in front of a big screen. There must be about three, 4,000 people there. And by the end of it all, I think it's fair to say most people found it hilarious. <laughs> I think other countries, that's the one thing other countries could learn from the English. By the end, everyone was sort of thinking, oh, I hope, I hope we don't equalise now because <laughs> this is funny. <laughs> right, that brings us to the end of this week's uh, Bugle. Um, Alice... Uh, anything to plug apart, of course, from the gargle, where uh, this week you can hear more about the uh, the open AI hirings and firings. Yes, uh, Gargle, a sister podcast to The Bugle, uh, is still available every week with me. And unbound.com, if you write in Alice Fraser, you can uh, pre-order the Dancy Lagarde reader, which I have finished writing. 
Congratulations. So now it's up to them as to when it will end up in your hot little hands, but it's available for pre-order at unbound.com and type in Alice Fraser. All right. Exciting. Uh, Mark? Uh, well, you can come and uh, see me having chemotherapy every Monday <laughs> for the next six weeks. <laughs> and uh, tickets will be going on sale soon if you go to Mark uh, www.markstill.chemo.cancer.uk and um, I think there's still some left for the second week. <laughs> Uh, and then we're taking it on tour later <laughs> in the year if that works. Um, I'll be think, I know uh, I'll, I'll be doing Shrewsbury, Doncaster, go to hospitals all over Britain, and uh, also I'll have support some uh, some places you know, um, for people who haven't been diagnosed yet. You know, just starting out, open spot cancer people. It's always good to give them a chance. Uh, but I, oh, I'm doing a I'm doing a, 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 a well, I'm, this is all predicated on the fact that this goes all right. Then. Um, Mark Stills in town. My series will be on again at some point when I'm able to do them. But I have been to Margate already this week, and uh, I'm looking around there. And then I'm going to go to Stoke soon. I don't know what the other ones will be yet. Uh, and your podcast? Oh yes. What the f- is going on? Do listen to that as well. Oh, also, I do a weekly writers meeting on my Patreon, which you can currently get for a dollar a month. <laughs> uh, actually, I do two weekly writers meetings that you can currently get for a dollar a month because I don't know how business works. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. Two, two hourly weekly writers meetings for a dollar a month. That's half a dollar a meeting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, well, don't... I'm, I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> Um, don't forget uh, to book your tickets for the Bugle Live Tour uh, in March at numerous venues around uh, the UK, uh, including uh, Glasgow, Norwich, Birmingham, uh, Salford Stroke, Manchester. Uh, there's a London date in June and some other dates that I can't remember offhand. So I'm going to just leave that mysteriously in the air for you to find out for yourselves. Uh, tickets available via thebuglepodcast.com or elsewhere on the internet to join the Bugle voluntary subscription scheme um, and to make a one-off or recurring contribution to help keep this show free, flourishing and independent, go to thebuglepodcast.com. Premium level subscribers get exclusive access to the monthly Ask Andy show where I answer your questions and we are uh, shortly going to be recording a Bugle vinyl record for our premium voluntary subscribers as well. So we are embracing the future of technology. (laughs) Uh, We'll be back next week with Stuart Lee and Felicity Ward. Until then, goodbye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.